morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 18. Working our way through the book of Acts, how it changes everything is our current teaching series. Today we're going to talk about avoiding burnout. Key verse in Acts is 1-8, Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. When you begin to get a glimpse of the cross and all of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, it will revolutionize your life. You will never be the same. You will no longer be suited for a normal life. That's what we have going on in the book of Acts. And chapter 18 gives us some really great insight on avoiding burnout. Let me begin by reading to you Psalm 23rd Antithesis. How many are familiar with uh, Psalm 23? Maybe you've memorized it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, And it goes on from there. Here's the antithesis to that psalm. The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me into deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done. For my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They, they demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My in-basket overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressures shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. Not good. Not good, is it? I think that sometimes certainly is a commentary of our lives. There has never been a culture more prone to burnout than ours. I think every culture has said that, but it it is true. It does progressively seem to be getting worse. Take a look at your notes. I've got a definition for burnout for you. It is a loss of enthusiasm, energy, idealism. Idealism means uh, optimism. So it's a loss of enthusiasm, energy, optimism, perspective, and purpose. It is a state of mental, physical, and spiritual exhaustion that goes far beyond mere discouragement. How many would say that you have a few stressors in your life that might, you've seen yourself pushed maybe to that edge, certainly, in your life? Show of hands, show of hands. How many are sitting right next to your biggest stress factor right now? Okay. Yep. You're pointing them out. How many would say that I am Nancy's biggest stress factor? Hey, that stresses me out when you do that. Yeah, I, I probably am. She's not so much of my stressor. She, she helps me in a lot of different ways. I tend to probably bring a lot of stress to her life. But uh, as we look at our text here today, when you consider the number of stress factors in Paul's second missionary journey, if you study Acts 15 through 17, I mean, he just has tons of things. Chapter 15, if you remember, it's the Jerusalem Council. So there's a little stress in in trying to figure out, you know, what, how are we saved? Is it by God's grace? What should we add to that? Should we not add anything to that? They kind of work through that. They, They resolve that. But then that chapter ends with this sharp dispute a disagreement between him and Barnabas. They split ways. And then in chapter 16, they kind of wander around a little bit trying to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We studied that. And then they head into this place called Philippi 
where he, him and his uh, partner, um, Silas, yeah, Paul and Silas, they get their backs beat off of them and thrown in prison. And then they're released from prison. They head into Thessalonica, and there's a group of Jew, uh, jealous Jews that form a mob, and they run them out of town, out of Thessalonica, only to find their way to Berea. And then they're run out of Berea, and then he ends up in Athens. We talked about that, an amazing uh, message that he gave on Mars Hill there in the Areopagus, there as he was talking to the men of Athens. Pretty amazing, but not much response. And so many commentators believe that Paul, based on uh, the number of stress factors in his life, he's on a second missionary journey, as you study, as I said, Acts 15 through 17. You can see why after traveling, and now he travels from Athens to Corinth, some 50 miles, all alone, and by the way, Corinthus would be classified as Sin City. It would be their Las Vegas of their day. Actually, they had coined a phrase for someone who was extremely irreligious uh, or very uh, promiscuous. They called him a Corinthian. And so it's kind of interesting. So he heads into this place in Corinth alone, and he is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. And in fact, we know that not only because we look at his stress factors heading there, but we also know that when he wrote his letter to the uh, church, 1 Corinthians, this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Sounds like a guy is on the edge. Sounds like he's pretty stressed. Sounds like he might be burning out. And so what is our tendency when we find ourselves on the edge? We find ourselves burning out. Our tendency is to medicate. Would you guys agree with that? I mean, so easy. He's in Sin City. Hey, let's party. He could just go off on the deep end for, for a few weeks, go on a binge of some sort, just to try to medicate, try to re regroup. But you, we're going to find out that he doesn't do that, obviously. Thank God, because he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, I mean, he had his problems. There's no doubt about it. He had his issues, but that was not one of them. And he knew where to go when he was stressed out. And we're going to get a chance to see that in his life. But... Uh, but we tend to medicate. And when we medicate, it only adds to our inevitable burnout. But our text is going to teach us how to recalibrate our lives in Christ, therefore avoiding burnout. That's where we're headed with our study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. With your heads bowed, eyes closed, how many would say just by show of hands that you could use some strength this morning? Ooh, a lot of hands, a lot of us. I'm going to praise uh, Isaiah 40. Many of you are familiar with that text as we pray this morning. God, you saw the hands. You saw the many that are here that could really use some strength. Father God, your power is immeasurable. Your love for us is incomparable. Your beauty, your beauty is breathtaking. Your word tells us that you give strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in you, those who wait on you, those who trust in you will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. May that be true about us this morning as we spend time with you through the study of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. I'm going to do it a little bit differently than what I've done the last few weeks. We kind of go back and forth a little bit. Sometimes I'll read completely through the text, and we'll go back and talk about it. 
We did that last week. This week we're going to take a chunk at a time. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at the verses 1 through 5. And I'll make a couple points and then we'll take verses 6 through 8. And then we'll just kind of work through the whole chapter here this morning. We're learning how to avoid burnout. I think he gives us some really great insight here. And so let me begin reading. So after this, Paul left Athens. And so Paul leaves Athens. Not a real prosperous trip. He presents the gospel. There's a few that believe, but many mock him. Under certainly some strain in his life, travels 50 miles by himself, by himself and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Notice this, why they're there. They're there under duress also, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and then it says that he went to see them. So he goes and he finds out about them. He searches them out. And because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so finally his uh, helpers come along. And notice, because they come along, notice what it says. Paul was occupied with the word. So it almost seems as though that he was able to not do the tent making as much and be able to be more focused on the word. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that uh, the Christ was Jesus. Let's stop there just for a minute. And uh, let me give you the first couple points here of our study. Uh, God, uh, here's the first point. Don't withdraw. So if you're going to avoid burnout, don't withdraw, but engage with others and healthy activity. And that's what we see Paul is actually doing here. Um, verse 2, back to verse 2, it says, Paul went to see them, Aquila and Priscilla, stayed and worked with them uh, as tent makers. A couple of things I think that we can draw from that, a couple of truths, and, and then I'll move to the next one. But... Uh, if you're ever relocated to a new area, the very first thing you should do is look for a church. Even before you get relocated to that area, you should look for a church. I, I just think that's just wise counsel. If there had been a church in this region, I think that's what Paul would have done. But there wasn't. He was there to start a church. But what does he do? He finds the Christians that are there. He finds Christians. Why was he doing that? I, I think because he's, he's teaching us something. Don't withdraw, but engage with others in healthy activity. And this is what I have found through the years as a, as a believer, is that as a Christian, and this is what you'll find to be the case also once you've made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, you'll have more of a natural bond and closeness to other Christians, more so than people in your own biological family who aren't. How many have found that to be true? Isn't that amazing? When I was working construction, also in the fire department for a number of years, one of the things that I found that was quite interesting is that there were certain people that I would bond with only to find out, no wonder I bonded with them. They were Christians. There was something about them. How many have found that to be true that in certain work environments? Something, you just, there's something that attracts you or draws you. You bond. You have a lot of things in common. I'm, my goodness, why wouldn't you? Because you've gone from death to life. That's the most significant event in your life, Christ, who he is. And so that's what we see Paul doing. He immediately bonds with these, this couple who are Christians. Because, because when we're getting burned out, when we're on the edge, we need that. We need to engage with others in healthy activity. Now, as I was thinking about that, I asked the question, so why do we tend to do the opposite? 
Why do we withdraw? Because notice I said don't withdraw, but engage with others in healthy activity. Because my natural inclination is when I'm stressed out, I tend to withdraw. I tend to kind of say, oh, I, or when I'm going through really a lot of duress, a lot of difficulties, I tend to withdraw. And that's part of my sinful nature. How many would say that you typically do that too? You just kind of want to withdraw? You guys are sinners too. Okay. Just like me. We tend to do that. And I started thinking about that. Why do we do that? Why, why would we not, why do we withdraw why do we withdraw rather than engage with others in healthy activity during time? And I'm not saying that there aren't times that, that are appropriate for that. But I've actually seen people where they, where they withdraw, they, they insulate, isolate, and actually they become unhealthy in that process rather than to engage and continue on in the process of restoring their lives spiritually. A couple different reasons for that is one is that pretense increases stress in community. When we, when we do a lot of game playing, have you ever been around people where it just, boy, it just drains the heck out of you? Show of hands, show of hands, yeah. Uh, the reason for that is probably because, uh, so if pretense, if pretense drains you, then authenticity uh, can refill you and refuel you. There's something about authenticity. When you can be yourself, when you're around people, you can be yourself. You can just let your hair down like me, and, uh, and just be yourself. How many have noticed that the time just flies by and it's really refreshing? You laugh and you share stories and you just engage with one another and there's a real sense of acceptance and love and encouragement and show of hands. Once again, I've got you raising your hand a lot today, don't I? A little exercise there. But, uh, and if that's the case, then why would we withdraw? And I think it's because too often we have a lot of pretense in our life. And pretense just takes a lot of work. And, and when people are draining, it's a lot of times it's because we can't be open and honest with them and we feel like we're on guard and we have to guard ourselves. So when you come away from a party or a group of people and you feel like you're stressed out more than refueled, chances are it's probably because there's some pretense going on. Because the more you're able to open up and be yourself and just share what's going on in your life and there's this acceptance, uh, the more you're going to be refueled in that. I was also thinking as, in regards to that, so we've got to get rid of our pretense, and I'll talk to you a little bit about how we do that in just a moment. But I think there's also an issue here that even though we are authentic, how many would agree with me that authentic relationships, uh, in authentic relationships, uh, conflict is going to be inevitable? Would you guys agree with that? You're going to have conflict. And I don't think we're really good at dealing with conflict. We tend to not need relationships enough or community enough or we're overly needy. And so, therefore, we are hypersensitive and we get hurt real easily. And, uh, and we don't know how to deal with hurt. And so, instead of allowing hurt uh, to make us wise, we allow it to make us hard don't let hurt, relational hurt, make you hard. Let it make you wise. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? So the tendency is to like, well, if that's how those people are, forget it. I'll never join another small group. I'll never get close to anybody. Well, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's, that just doesn't make sense. When you really think about it, don't, don't be hard. Be wise. Think through what's going on in your life. Maybe you were just being too needy why would you be so devastated why would you be so devastated if you remember what jesus has done for you right here why would you be so hypersensitive 
if you understood and lived in the reality of the cross. But we, we all are. We all do that. That's, that's normal. Here's what's interesting. The gospel liberates individuals, but it does so both through and for deep community. So this is how God's going to fix you. This is how he's going to heal you. He's going to do it in the context of community. Oh, wait a minute. That's how I got hurt. Exactly. You know, you're going to get hurt in community, but also that's how he's going to fix you. He's going to fix you, and, and he's going to heal you through for deeper community. In fact, you know that you're being healed, uh, and you're understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ more clearly because your community and how you connect with others and how you deal with conflict is a mirror of your understanding of who God is and what God's doing in your life. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? So, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but that's why we kind of withdraw. There's just a lot of different things, but we need to we need to get close to one another, and we need the strength that that provides us the next point uh, on your notes. But before you do that, let me just say this. Let me just say that you have, when you understand that you have the assurance of God's love no matter what, because you have the assurance of God's love no matter what through the cross, you can do something really bold. You can take off the mask and be who you are. You don't have to try to be what you're not. Does that make sense? You don't need their approval or acceptance. You've got his, and you can help to create an atmosphere so that there can be that mutual approval and acceptance. Um, and and those, those are the kind of environments. You have the assurance of God's love no matter what. Therefore, you, can, you don't have to pretend to be more together than what you are. That's, just, that's the gospel. And the more you begin to understand that, the more you can just be, your, be you. Huh. Flaws, faults, feelings. Every part of you. And there's nothing more healing than that. Next point in your notes. Draw from your relational equity the strength, love, and support you need. Did you notice this? Verse 5, I pointed it out. Silas and Timothy arrived and Paul was occupied with the word. There's kind of a synergy that's going on there as a result of that. Everybody look up here just for a minute. This is what you need to understand. Your self-esteem is the compilation of verdicts that have been passed on to you through your parents, your upbringing, and even maybe even to this day, now that you're grown and gone from your home, but through your parents, through your peers, and through people who you highly respect. So it's this compilation of these verdicts. And so how you see yourself is really through, the, through how these verdicts and these things that they have said and how they've treated you throughout the years. It can either be good or bad. But here's what's amazing about the gospel. The gospel has the ability to overturn all of those verdicts. Isn't that amazing? That when we begin to see who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it can, that's where the, the healing comes from a lot of bad verdicts and bad upbringing, a lot of things that have been, been done to us growing up or in our work environment. We just get the heck beat out of us. And, uh, and we need to have someone or we need to come back to the gospel. The gospel overturns those verdicts. Even if the world rejects you, despises you, spits at you, his love, the love of God, lavished upon you, calling you his child, overturns all of that. It has the ability, and it should, to the degree that you understand that, it overturns those verdicts. Now, we need to have people in our life. I have a, I have a bunch. My primary one is my wife. She has this ability that when you come to me and you spit at me and 
are mean to me. And I've had a few people spit at me. Yes, I have. And uh, not here. Not in this church. But, uh, but I've had people be really mean to me and I'm beat up by life. I can go to her and she reminds me of him. She points to him and says, hey, listen, I love you. But there's someone else that really loves you too. And so she kind of, she, she overturns that. She has that ability. I can get a hundred negative responses from people and her one positive can overturn that. Boom, boom, boom. I've also got people in my life. I meet with a guy regularly and this is all we talk about right here. And when I leave that meeting, I am ready to take on the world because I'm reminded, oh my goodness, if God is for me, who can be against me? <laughs> Whoa, I love it. That's awesome. So that's, that's why we need people in our lives. That's why we need small groups. That's why we emphasize small groups. That's why we emphasize that you, in a small group, that when you get together, that you think about this. In fact, it was one of the cross-references I put on there. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another. So consider. So when you go to a small group, this is what you should be praying. God, I know that Jim and Bob and Tony and, and uh, Susan, and they're going to all be there. God, help me to stir up within them greater appetite and passion for you so that they can see your love and your beauty more clearly so that it can overturn all the negative verdicts that have been thrown on them throughout the week. That's what he's saying. He says, so, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So those are the first things. If you're going to overcome, uh, if you're going to avoid burnout, you need to have people in your lives that are cheering you on. And, and you and yourself need to begin to understand the gospel more clearly because it's, it's not so much about your schedule, it's more about your heart. It's about whether or not you're living in the reality of the gospel. And... Uh, and there are even times in my life, I'm kind of the more high-maintenance one in, in, in our relationship between Nancy and I. She's not here, is she? Where is she? She's looking for a new church. She doesn't, she doesn't like the preaching here. Um, I'm kidding. She's somewhere around here. But I, I tend to be the more high-maintenance one in our relationship. And there are times that I'll say, man, I'm just drained. I really need more affirmation. Tell me how great I am. Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> no, I don't do that. I don't say that, but... But she knows. She knows my love language. I know her love language. I know what helps to recharge her. But the most important thing she does is to point me to the cross and point me to Jesus. Let's continue reading verses 6 through 8. Gets better as, you, as we walk through this. And when they opposed and reviled him. It's talking to, so he's in the synagogue and he's talking to them. And he's trying to convince them uh, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him. So he's, this guy, he's one tough dude. I like Paul. He's just he's an amazing tough dude. How was he so tough? Well, I think he, because he had people in his life and I think he kept, his, he kept focused on the cross and the gospel and he knew that. But he was reviled. He shook out. Now notice this. Here's, here's boundaries. How many have ever read the book by John Townsend, Henry Cloud, Boundaries? Show of hands. It's a good book. He's going to show us right here. Paul's showing us boundaries right here. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. That's a good boundary. I'm not responsible. I told you. You're going to stand before God and give an account of your lives. 
That's just, that's an excellent boundary. I also believe that he's doing something here besides boundaries. I think he's giving himself margin. I think he knows where the edge is, and so he's backing off from it. And so we're going to talk about that in a minute. But he says, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there. No, this is, this is a crack up. This is so funny as I read this. So he leaves the synagogue. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. You guys won't listen? We'll start a church right next door. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. Like, okay, we'll just start a church right next door in this guy's house. And then verse 8, Crispus. I had an ADD moment when I read that. Crispus Cremus. Anybody there with me? Yeah, right on. Let's do a run. Let's do a Krispy Kreme run. Who wants to go for us? Anybody? Okay. Can you buy enough for everybody? So Crispus, Crispus, okay, get your mind off of that. Come back, come back, come back. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized in frosting. Okay. Okay, I've carried it too far right then. Um, But they were baptized. So the very first thing that you do when you put your faith in Jesus Christ is that you make a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. You're going to want to tell the world. You do it through water baptism. You're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, reminder, if you've never been baptized, you've made a confession of faith in Jesus. We've got a class right up here at the end of the service. We've got the big baptism uh, party coming up. You can do that. But, I mean, it's throughout the book of Acts. So let's stop there. Let me give you the next point on the notes. Make sure you have a healthy sense of boundaries, giving yourself margin. Let's define boundaries and margin. Boundaries are what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. Boundaries are also a sense of uh, letting in the good, keeping out the bad. When someone says something negative to you, you have to have the ability to be able to stop it outside of you and not internalize it. That's boundaries. Someone, he just chewed me out. Well, don't personalize it. Don't internalize it. Uh, so, uh, so that's good boundaries. Boundaries is, uh, is, you know, my, I don't expect my next door neighbor to mow my lawn. I wish he would, but, uh, I don't expect him to. I've got a big lawn. It'd be nice if he did, but, but it's not his responsibility. It would be crazy for me to think that. But I see a lot of times people have conflict and it's over boundary issues. They're expecting someone to do something that it's like, come on. That's not your responsibility, nor should you be demanding that of them. That can help to eliminate a lot of stress in our lives too. It's just knowing what am I responsible for, what I'm not responsible for. Along with, uh, here's, the, here's the interesting thing is that we tend to, when I sit down and talk with people, especially in marriage relationships, that there are, there's two types of people. There are those that take on too much responsibility, and then there are those that don't take on enough responsibility. And the one usually meets the other and they get married and, And they try to live happily ever after until the one that takes on too much responsibility is stressed out saying, hey, you need to pick up your end of the heavy end of the log. Come on, dude. You need to step it up. And so there's this, there's this, it creates conflict. And the person says, well, you've always done it for me. Why are you, you know, why don't you just keep doing it? It's because I'm tired of doing it and you need to start doing it. And so whatever doing it is. And so you, you have to try to figure out what, what are boundaries and, and everybody needs to establish right boundaries and and I tend to be a hyper-responsible person. And Nancy does too, though. It's kind of interesting in our home. 
We tend to over, over, we take on too much responsibility and for each other, back and forth, and so it's kind of a weird dynamic in that. But boundaries helps you to say, hey, I'm, I'm responsible for this, but I'm not responsible for that. And we don't do very good with that. And what that does is it adds stress to our lives. Margin is space between your load and your limit. It's kind of like having a wheelbarrow that's the limit mark on it says it, it can handle 200 pounds and you load it up with 250 pounds. Over time, that wheelbarrow is going to break, just as you will, if you take on more than what you are, you know, than what your limit says that you can take. And you've got to kind of know where your limit is. It's kind of like, uh, I, for years, I did not know what my limit was, and I would push myself right up to the edge, and I'd be like dangling off the edge, and then somebody would come along and push me right over the edge. And what I mean by that, emotionally, I would go off on someone. Eventually, I'd just, I'd like, ah, I'm so stressed out, and then all of a sudden, I'd just go, boom, explode. And mine, I'm, I'm open and uh, aggressive person. My wife is more closed in her aggression. And she would put, be pushed up to the side, but then she would just shut down. She would be more, push it down inside of her. And I would do more of the explosion thing. And, uh, and it's because I didn't know where the edge is. You need to know where the edge is, and you need to stay back from that edge. And you can't let people push you. If they start pushing you, you need to know that you're not going to be pushed over the edge. And that's that idea of margin. Margin is space between the load and the limit. It's breath at the top of the staircase. It's money at the end of the month. It's sanity at the end of raising your teenagers. I don't know if that's possible, but uh, that's, it's pretty stressful, but you just you have to pace yourself. It's really about pacing. It is breathing room. It's reserve emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. Here's one of the cross-references here. By the way, uh, look at, if you see the cross-references up there, Mark 1, uh, 32 through 39, Jesus does a wonderful job of showing both uh, boundaries and margin. It's probably one of the busiest days of his ministry life. And he gets up early the next morning and spends time with the Father. The disciples come out after him and say, hey, the people are looking for you. He goes, hey, that's cool. We need to go to the next place. And so he just kind of cuts out and moves on. Galatians 6, 2, and 5 talk about the difference between how we need to bear one another's burdens, but then at the same time, we are not to enable one another that people, every person needs to bear their own burden. So it kind of makes this combination of the two. And then in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, you're familiar with this. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. You guys know what a yoke is? Not the one that you crack and open up and fry eggs with, but it's that harness. It's the harness of a, over an ox. So he's saying, take my yoke. So I have responsibility for you. I have things for you to do. So yeah, you do have responsibility. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're really following Jesus then you should be able to say that it's easy and it's light. But the reason why it isn't is because maybe you're not really following Jesus. Or maybe, here's, here's what I was thinking as it relates to my own life, because I tend to be kind of a stressed person and there's just a lot of reasons for that. But part of the reasons for that is that it could be your burnout is due to the, you're doing more than what God has commissioned you to do. He says, my yoke, take my yoke upon you. Or it could be that you're doing what he has commissioned in your own strength. You're not depending on him in the process of doing what he's called you to do. I'll never forget this. I was, 
I was going through my vehicular training as a paramedic on Phoenix Fire Department, and uh, it was at Fire Station 18. Probably one of the busier fire stations here in town. It's located, uh, now it's relocated across the street from, it's been there for a few years now, right across the street from the, the uh, Assembly of God Church that Nancy and I got married in at 23rd Avenue in Camelback. But as I was doing my vehicular, I was with a partner of mine who was also going through the training academy, Noberto Jim, and one of our first calls that day was a code, full code, person we needed to resuscitate him, and it turned into a fiasco. And we did everything we could. We started the IVs, pushed the drugs, did that, you know, tried to resuscitate, put, took the person to the hospital, and the guy died. And both my partner and I felt like somebody had just come up and socked us right in the gut, like, ah, what the heck are we doing? And I'll never forget this. Um, the senior uh, firefighter, he was the paramedic, he set us down at the table, and we were sitting there at fire station 18. He set us at the table, he said, come here, guys, sit down right here. He says, yeah, there were some things you guys need to do better and you need to learn, and that's part of your skills, and that's why we were here to supervise you, and we're going to let you kill the guy, okay? That's what, that's what they said. Okay, thank you. Um, but, but this is what you need to learn. Don't ever forget this. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. In fact, I think that he was speaking. He's not a, he wasn't a Christian. He later on died of brain cancer. But, but, and I hope that he gave his heart to Jesus before he did that. But this is what he said. He said, he looked us in the eyes and he said, listen to me. People live and die in spite of what you do. You do the very best you can. When things don't go well, you learn from it, but you move on. You've got to turn it over and let it go, and you can't take it personal. And basically, he was just saying, really, what the Bible teaches. And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, I, you know, I, dust, you know, I shake the dust off my feet. It's on your head. I've done everything I can. You're now responsible. I used to take personally everybody that came and went from this church. And I had to take that with me and understand the sovereignty of God and understand that people come and go in spite of what I do. Some people would say, he's the most unfriendly pastor or he doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. And, I, and, and certainly I would look at myself and say, hey, and I would ask people, hey, am I that, that unfriendly? What can I do to change? I need to learn. I need to get better at this and, and work through that. And we can certainly learn from that. But when it's all said and done, I need to be able to lay my head on the pillow at night and say, hey, God, it's in your hands. I've done all that I can Some of you need to do that with your kids, with relatives. I know you're afraid they're going to hell. I understand that. But you freaking out and trying to control them is not going to get them there any quicker. It's really through, by God's grace. It's by God's grace. So you get on your knees and you pray, but ultimately you have to turn it over to him. There's so much in our life that we're out of control. We can't control the only thing we can control is our response to the circumstances and, and, and to trust God in that. People live and die in spite of you. People come and go in spite of you. Don't take it personal. If you do, you're just thinking too highly of yourself anyway. It's pride. That's what I learned. I used to take responsibility for everybody that came in and out of this church. And finally I realized, you know what? I'm going I'm to do what you called me to do. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to be completely authentic, God. I'm going to honor you because it's not about me. It's about you. And I'm going to point people to you. And I'm going to apologize. When people don't see you, I'm going to say, God, I'm going I'm to tell them, I'm so sorry that you didn't see God in this. You didn't see Jesus more clearly. Please forgive me. I'm sorry that I did that. And, and move on from there. But leave it in his hands. That's what he's teaching us in this. Have good boundaries and great margin. Here's the next thing. Continue reading, verses 9 through 11. 
This is good. Oh my goodness. Some of you are here today because you needed to hear this right here. These next words. These are, these are rich words. This, this is from our, our daddy in heaven. And he says, and, and the Lord said to Paul, and this is why some believe that Paul was on the verge of burnout because you wouldn't need to hear this unless you were on the verge of burnout. And God isn't going to show up unless you're going to need him to really show up and say these things. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Now think about this. Here's, here's God speaking to him. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my children or my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Isn't that amazing? So here's, here's the point. I think we can learn from it. It is critical, if I'm going to overcome burnout, it is critical that objective truth, the promises of God, becomes hard experience. Otherwise, you have a dead orthodoxy. In other words, it's got to go from your head to your heart. Otherwise, the difficulties of life could cause you to defect. Or even the, uh, the pleasures of life could cause you to defect. That's why sometimes people defect. In fact, people defect for two reasons from the faith. Usually they're disillusioned by the pressures of life and they're, or they're deceived by the pleasures of life. And so what we need is this objective truth that God is greater than anything we face, that his grace is sufficient. No matter what you go through, no matter what you go through, this is what he's telling him, I am with you. I will be with you. My grace is sufficient for you. And that needs to be just more than just objective truth. It needs to be heart experience. I've got to have a sense of it on my heart. Otherwise, I will cave in under pressure. I've got to have it more than just a theoretical, wishful thinking. God with you. God's with you. It's got to be a real thing. God has to show up in my life. And by the way... As I was reading this, I was thinking, yeah, well, that would make it a lot easier if God just showed up and started speaking to me audibly. That would be really cool. He doesn't have to. He did it right here for Paul. This is written down for all of us. This is how he feels about us. Some of you desperately need to hear this. You need to hear, he won't leave you. He loves you. His grace is sufficient. When it comes to the pressures of life, when it comes to the, to the pleasures of life that we tend to chase after, you need to know that there's nothing that will gr- bring greater pleasure in your life than Him. The pleasure you find in Him must exceed, in other words, it can't just be some objective truth, it has to be a heart reality, where you find unbelievable pleasure in Him, and that's what keeps you from chasing after the pleasures of this world. That's what keeps you from medicating when you're stressed out. That's what I love about this. Um, what we know objectively must become subjective reality. We've got to get the coins to drop. They've got to drop down into our heart. The Bible gives us thousands of promises. What is the most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. I will be with you, guaranteed by the cross. There's a difference between knowing that Jesus is with you and knowing the Jesus that is with you. The latter produces an invincible faith. So I put some verses up there. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. So let me ask you this. Are there times in your life when you have a sense of his presence that's so powerful that you know that you can face anything on your heart? 
I hope that you experience that during the time of worship. That's why we do the worship. That's why we do the time of song. That's why we study God's word. There are times when I study God's word, God speaks to me so clearly. He spoke to me so clearly through what he was speaking to Paul. It was almost as if he was saying, Ray, that's for you. That's for your congregation. That's for people that will be showing up here on Sunday morning. They can take that to the bank. That's for them. I pray that that would become a hard experience for you. In fact, I would encourage you to even take words like that and take them with you this next week and begin to meditate on it and God will begin to make it alive to you unlike you've ever experienced before. It will become hard experience and it will become the grace that will be sufficient to help you to, to deal with whatever you're facing. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. I believe that. God is with you. And in fact, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, this is what it says. Everybody look up here. This is what you can take to the bank based on the cross of Jesus Christ. I will never, this is what God is saying to you this morning, no matter what you're going through, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. That's literally what he's saying in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. When you look at it in the Greek, he's saying ever, 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 ever. I won't. He is with you. He is with you. He loves you. Oh, God, help that to become a hard experience within our lives. And so for that to happen, we've got, the next, we've got to learn to begin to live by faith and not by sight. And that's what we're going to learn in the next point, verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Archaea, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio uh, uh, said to The Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions and about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let me give you the next point. Here it is. God is working for our good and his glory, whether we can see it or not. You know, obviously Paul could see it here. I mean, God comes in and through this judge, this Gallio, uh, God works through his heart to give uh, Paul favor But this is what we need to know, and if we're going to keep ourselves from being drained out and burned out, is God is working for our good and his glory, whether we can see it or not. Otherwise, people, things, and circumstances will stress us out. We'll find ourselves in circumstance enhancement, or people enhancement, trying to change people. If I can get them to do this, I'm going to feel better about myself. Quit that. Knock that off. Believe that no matter what goes down in your life, God is working for your good and his glory. There's a video clip I want to show you. It's from the movie Rudy. How many have ever seen the movie? It's a good movie. I like it. There's a scene in there where Rudy, obviously he's wanting to go to Notre Dame. And he's really struggling. He hasn't been accepted yet. He's wondering if it's ever going to come through. It's interesting dialogue that he has with the priest. Check it out. Taking your appeal to a higher court. I'm desperate. If I don't get in next semester, it's over. Done. Notre Dame doesn't accept senior transfers. Well, did a hell of a job, kid. Chasing down your dream. I don't care what kind of job I did. If it doesn't produce results, it doesn't mean anything. I think you'll discover that it will. 
Maybe I haven't prayed enough. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the problem. Praying is something we do in our time. The answer's come in God's time. Have I done everything I possibly can? Can you help me? Son, in 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. There's a major difference between God and us. One of the major differences between God and us is that uh, God never thinks that he's us. And, uh, and that's, so you guys got it. Uh, one of our biggest problems is that we try to play God. And worry and impatience is a manifestation of that. Our worry is saying, I don't think you're doing a very good job here. I think I know better than you. I think that our impatience with God rather than to... So here's the test. I mean, it's easy to say, hey, God's for me and not against me when everything's going well. But can you say God is for me and not against me when everything's going wrong? And believe that he's working it for your good and his glory. In other words, what I'm saying is that can you live by faith and not by sight? See, that's the true test. And by the way, he is working for your good and his glory. Listen to me. He is working for your good and his glory. Listen to me. He is. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you can't make sense of it, but that's why the Bible tells us to live by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7, live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. He's working in your life. That's why you need desperately people in your life to, to point that out to you, to say, I can see God working. I know you can't see it, but I can see it. That's why we need those folks that are around us that cheer us on and love us and encourage us and help us to stay focused upon Jesus and upon the cross. And uh, I know this. I know this. That the greatest joys and the worst pains in this world, in this life, can't compare to walking with him, knowing him, experiencing him in our lives, regardless of what goes down. Stay close to him. He loves you. He is working in your life for your good, his glory. And uh, sometimes you, you might not even be able to figure it out until you, you're with him face to face. But that's why we have Romans 8.28. Genesis 50, 20, which are great verses to memorize. Verses 18 through 23. Let's head towards the, the end of this chapter. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then uh, took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Cesare, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, this is interesting. He's taking a Nazarite vow, and this, that's an important point there. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Once again, he's exercising some boundaries. For some reason, he's got a little bit of a timeline, and he doesn't stay there. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, that's the launching pad. That's where he started his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey. Now, he completes his second missionary journey, and in verse 23, he heads into his third missionary journey. And uh, 
And so after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He was able to strengthen the disciples because I think that he withdrew for a season and he went back home to his home base to recharge himself. And he was able to give. You can't give what you don't have. I think that he had a good set of boundaries and knew his, had a bit of margin and he went back home to Antioch so that he could recharge in life. And that's why it says specifically that he was able, uh, that he was strengthening the disciples as a result of that. Let me give you the next point on your notes. We're almost finished. Um, have a whatever-it-takes attitude to keep your heart fully devoted to Jesus Christ, fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that's what, what he's doing here. He cut his hair because he was under a vow. Nazarite vow, if you want to learn more about it, it's found in Numbers 6, Old Testament. We all make vows. We make official vows through marriage. We make unofficial vows just by the things that we say. Our vows can be both good and bad. But what happens, something bad happens to us. We, hate, we go through a bad divorce or a bad church experience or something or, or we're raised in poverty and we assign meaning to it. And then every decision of your life, uh, and, and then every, everything that you, and then you begin to assign meaning to it and then you make a vow as a result. For instance, if you were, uh, you were in a church, you were raised in a church, it was kind of shoved down your throat, it was an abusive church, and you make a vow. I will never go to church again. I, or I, won't, I will not raise my kids in church. I'm going to let them decide on their own. That's a vow. Not a good vow. Because you're going the other way. You're allowing yourself to be hard rather than, than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You need to analyze it and look at it. Or maybe I've heard people do this. They were raised in poverty and they say, I will never be poor again. And they make a vow. And, and what happens with that vow is that uh, as we make those vows, uh, it drives every decision of our life, putting us on a collision course with the purposes of God. So, for instance, if we make a vow, and it's a form of idolatry. It's kind of like Rudy. He made a vow. He was saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become part of Notre Dame, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be part of their team, their football team. I'm going to do this. And, and because his sense of identity was so heavily attached to that, that he was going to die if he didn't do that. Nothing wrong with, with, with making some commitments and vows, but let me give you a, a better way to make a vow. And I think this is what Paul's doing in this vow. He's making a vow that says, I'm not going to let anything interfere with my relationship with God and my finding deep passion and, and delight and pleasure in Jesus Christ. That's why he did the Nazarite vow. Vows would look, work something like this. I've been watching too much TV lately. I'm going to knock it off for a season because I need to hear God more clearly. So that would be a good vow because I need to refuel myself. Or I've been doing this or that and I need to stop doing that. And that's it, it's, it, what it is, it's, it's spiritual disciplines. I need to take verses that apply to fear because I've had a lot of fear dominating my life and so I'm gonna make a vow so that I can begin to get the reality of God's presence deep into my heart. As Pastor Ray said, it needs to be more than objective truth. It needs to be heart experience. So God, I'm making a vow right now. I want to experience you deep in my heart. I want you to be the center of my life, regardless of what goes down. See, that would be a better vow. The best vow is that whether I am able to go to Notre Dame and play on their football team or not... I will live my life for the glory of God and I will keep my heart filled up with finding my deepest pleasure in Him. That's a great vow. That's the kind of vow that will sustain you. See, if you make a vow, and this is what drives a lot of our being uh, overwhelmed with burnout, 
And it goes back to what we were talking last week. If I make a vow, and it's a form of idolatry, obviously, uh, for certain accomplishments or acquisitions or accolades, those will drive your life. They will drive your life. And what will happen is that that idolatry, those idols will drive your life, and they're unbelievably unforgiving. If you don't ever accomplish it, you will beat yourself up your whole life. And even if you do, they're unfulfilling. You'll have to find something else because you're trying to fill a void that only Jesus can fill. But if you make knowing him your vow, experiencing him, when you fail him, he will forgive you. When you get him and walk with him, he will satisfy you. He will fulfill you. But you can see, this is the root of our, our being burned out, is that we misplace our identity. And we need to get our identity from Christ, and regardless of what happens. Nothing wrong with making these goals, but what if you don't ever, what if you can't go to Notre Dame? What if you can't play on the football team? Life's not over. That's what the priest was saying. He was saying, hey, there's more to life. You're going to find that your education here was still was beneficial for you. You've got to get the bigger picture. I think it's very helpful. Here's the last point, last thing. Verses uh, 24 through 28. This Apollos is one cool cucumber. I mean, this guy is pretty slick, and he's going to show us some really good insight here. This last point. Now, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So this guy's an unbelievably articulate communicator, creative, eloquent, and yet there's still some things lacking in, in his teaching. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, so he's got a great deal of confidence. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him to the side and said, hey, dude, you're kind of missing a few points here, so let us kind of set you straight. So I think it's a good lesson in how well do you receive criticism? I could stress this out too. See, if you find yourself, anytime someone wants to give you input, you're defensive, it's because you got pride, and we're going to talk about that. The gospel helps you to eliminate pride. So this guy's one cool cucumber. I mean, he's, he's open. He's unbelievably eloquent in his speech, and yet he's open, he's teachable. So he's got, this, he's got this combination of humble confidence that we often talk about. And then, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews. So he's got unbelievable confidence. Refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. We've been studying here chapter 18. Unbelievable. Here's the last point. The more you live in the reality of the gospel, the less pride and fear will dominate your life. Producing humble confidence of blessed self-forgetfulness. You, you, you get your eyes off of yourself and they become Christ. And if you're not gospel-driven, you're going to be driven by pride and fear. And pride and fear will wear you out. But gospel-driven means that your heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So it's not about you. Pride and fear is about you. That's why you can be easily offended and that's why you can't take criticism. But if you make it about the gospel, you're open to criticism. I had a pastor that I, that I follow on Twitter uh, sent this out last week, and he said, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> but God's grace is far bigger than you could ever imagine. That's the gospel. See, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I'm open to criticism because I know that I'm, I've got flaws. I've got blind spots. 
I know that's true. So I need the criticism. I need the input from others. But at the same time, I have a confidence because I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me. He gave his life for me. Can you see that humble confidence? So here's what humble confidence does. It gives you the ability not to be defensive when people want to criticize you. So you're, you can be open. You're humble to hear the hard words, but it also gives you the confidence to be able to speak the hard words. Because you need to speak hard words to the people that are around you too. That's that good balance. And that's, that's extremely helpful. Stand with me for closing prayer. Let's wrap it up. God, we are amazed at your word. It, it has spoken so clearly to us. We want to stay away from this edge of, of burning out. And so, God, may we surround ourselves with people that will speak into our lives and keep us focused on you, Jesus. And may we learn to have good, healthy boundaries and margin. And we know that the only way we can do that is we need to have our identity in you, Jesus, in the cross. That way we can say no to things and we can say yes to other things and we'll know how to balance our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that this week that your objective truth, your promises would become a hard experience for us. And God, we would we would begin to experience more of the reality of you in our lives and that would eliminate the pride and the fear but our hearts would be driven by hearts that are smitten by your beauty and your glory. That we would have a whatever it takes kind of an attitude to keep our hearts fully devoted to you. That we would practice the spiritual disciplines necessary so that we could see you more clearly. And God, we pray these things uh, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for your glory. And everyone said... Amen. Don't leave. Hold up for a second. Let me give you a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Give you peace. There's a peace that can be found in him regardless of what you're going through. And you can experience that as it guards your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.